I've been a part of six presidential campaigns, Clinton Gore, then Gore Lieberman, then Kerry and Edwards, Hillary Clinton in 07, occupied a vote in 2012, but I was President Obama's re-election, Biden-Harris. So six presidential campaigns. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Dr. Silas Lee, who is an expert in public opinion in the United States. He was part of the polling team at the Biden campaign in 2020, looking at the African-American vote. Silas runs a public opinion firm out of New Orleans called Dr. Silas Lee and Associates with clients like the National Urban League and the American Federation of Teachers. Silas is also a professor of sociology at Xavier University. I asked him about how he built his career and what he knows about public opinion. He's an interesting guy. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Dr. Silas Lee. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Silas, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? All right. Well, I live in New Orleans, but I commute to other places. I do a lot of work out of D.C. and New York. I also, I teach at Xavier University of Louisiana, sociology professor there. And I've been there uh, for 32 years. Uh, also, my uh, company, Dr. Silas and Associates, we do public opinion research for nonprofits, corporations, elected officials, people interested in running for office, policy makers and institutions, and healthcare, as well as trial testing and trial consulting. That is quite a large portfolio of things to do uh, in your life. Did you grow up in New Orleans? Yes, I did. I grew up in Central City, which is like uptown New Orleans. And during the, during that period, it was a uh, area going through transition in terms of racial demographics and social and economic demographics. Since 2005, that area where I grew up has, it was severely impacted by Hurricane Katrina, and it never fully recovered prior to Hurricane Katrina. It was a area in a neighborhood somewhat on the decline, and since 2005, it's become more commercialized in many ways, and it is still struggling to get its economic footing back to a large degree. What what kind of family did you come out of? Uh, my parents, my father and my mother, they worked together in a men's hat and clothing business. They met at Xavier University, and my dad finished in philosophy. My mother was a teacher for a while. Then she joined him 
in the business, which was started by my grandfather in the early 1900s. And when my first, my mother passed in 93, then my father in 98. And before he passed, I sold it and closed the business. Were they political people? Did you grow up political? In in many ways, yes. What I learned, uh, you know, an interesting thing in that business, due to the fact it was the only African-American hat and uh, shirt store in the city for a long time, it was during a period of of segregation and that changed too. But a lot of social, political uh, decision makers in the African-American community came there would hear them talk. And while in undergrad and also in graduate school, I worked uh, part-time at a prominent African-American funeral home. In the daytime, would help embalm bodies and maybe drive funerals. And in the evening, the limousines we would use for concerts and various entertainment events. But the interesting uh, thing about that, the exposure, that gentleman who owned the funeral home, one of the co-owners, he decided to run for state representative. So it was a great incubator for social and political issues and activism. And many of the emerging uh, influencers and leaders in the community came from that environment, if not other institutions and situations similar to the experience I had at Charbonnet Funeral Home. So that was the interesting about thing about that. People never associated the two, the fact that you had a funeral business, but it was also an incubator for civic and political activism. I guess that every family has to deal with funerals and it becomes a place where people people come together, I guess. You know, the other thing, during that period, looking at the 60s, the 70s, in particular the 80s, in terms of economic mobility, it was slowly changing, but at the same time, severely limited for the African-American communities. It was teaching some form of entrepreneurship, small business development, and funeral directors, as well as other initiatives. But funeral directors and the owners of these funeral homes, they were uh, prominent not only business people, but they were also involved in civic and social activities. I assume since your parents were college grads, you always had the expectation that you would go yourself? Yeah, uh, without a doubt, one of my major mentors, uh, Dr. Daniel Thompson, I remember after undergrad in particular, he and his wife, who also taught at Dillard University, uh, I would sit and listen to them. And he was a major influence in terms of sociology. He wrote several books. He was a, an advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was interesting to listen to him and hear how he analyzed issues. And I learned a lot of his style and his technique from him, which I still use and incorporate today. Uh, And and I think that's missing in a lot of cases where people today in particular who have the potential, they need that level of incubation. They need that mentorship. Uh, I see a lot of uh, individuals who want to serve 
and may run for office, but they are good resume candidates and they don't understand the knit, the grits of being a civic activist that in order to serve the people, you have to put time into it. It's not something automatic. You have to earn the respect and trust of people. And that takes time. Were there notable civic activists that you paid attention to in that point of your life, like around college and before? Yeah, uh, the late Ernest Dutch Moria, who was the first African-American mayor, then his son, uh, who I still do a lot of consulting for. He's the president now of the National Urban League, but he was the third African-American mayor in the city of New Orleans. And some other individuals um, that were very prominent in the community, they were educators, they were business people, they were ministers that came from a diverse background, civic and community groups. And from each one, you, you would learn and see something. And the interesting thing about that, you may not realize that you learn in so many different environments and so many uh, different situations that are basically non-traditional. It's not just going to school and sitting and listening, but that exposure helps develop you and helps you learn and basically try to become better yourself. And it gives you a level of diversity. You need that diversity to see how these elements in terms of institutions and people, how they fit together, how there's a universal component to them that many people may not associate. It seems like when I talk to people or watch people who have come of age in the politics in our great cities, there's just a level of politics that's more complicated, more rough and tumble, that a lot more learning and kind of adept politicians come out of environments like that, not just politicians, but consultants and other people in the political space. Do you see it that way? Yeah, it has to be because people tend to have a one-dimensional perspective about life and institutions, how they function. And in today's society, especially, uh, I see it in some of the students I hear from and some of the focus groups we do people have this sense of immediacy and that's due to the changes in technology and society where now we get information instantaneously and things appear to be seamless but they are not they're so integrated and interdependent that's the element that people tend to ignore that interdependence creates more dependency on these various social, institutional, and, and economic silos that, unfortunately, they do not always communicate. So it creates, when they break down, don't function, it creates a lot of discomfort. Uh, I use the example, it's like going to Best Buy and the salesperson will ask you, uh, well, what kind of TV you want? And you say, I want the 58-inch screen TV. The day of just going to a store and buying a TV, bringing it home, plugging it in, connecting two antennas, that's over because now you have to have internet or cable or satellite. It, it, and the, the big element is not free anymore. So we have all these interdependent elements, 
if the internet goes now, well, you may not be able to watch TV or cable goes now, you may not be able to watch it or the streaming service, something happens, you may not be able to watch it just like with your cell phone. (laughs) When the internet, the cell service goes out, you're trapped. So we are tremendously interdependent as a society and we don't realize the level of it and how it can create more frustration sometimes. And young people don't know what they don't know sometimes, right? It's always interesting in my classes. uh, I may go back to 20 years from now and have to remember, oh, y'all weren't born then. Right. And, and, you know, I, I, I use some movies that have been updated like Shaft and a couple of other Superfly and, and they, they, they look and say, oh, that was that was out before. Yeah. All <laughs> this stuff that you, a lot of the things that you see today, they are being remade. as just that they put a different theme to it. But a lot of people naturally we tend to see history as something that is ancient and not something, uh, activities that occurred 10 years ago. So I guess it's always being made. You, I mean, you seem like quite an advocate for sort of learning by doing, but you also are someone who picked up a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD. What did the academic side of your training bring to you that's important? Focus on discipline. With each one, it became a question of more focus and discipline. And I see it with the, in undergrad and with myself too, you had a lot of guardrails. You had people who were leading you and holding your hand and telling you, okay, this is next. We expect you to have this completed on a certain day and you would meet those deadlines. Masters, it was a different experience where you had a condensed amount of time, but at the same level, it gave you the freedom to explore with writing and doing research. With the PhD, what it did was, okay, here is all the courses you need, timetable that you can complete them. You write your dissertation, but the key there is after you finish that coursework, it's all about your focus and discipline. No one's going to tell you to, well, we got to have this proposal in, that chapter done. You have to set a deadline. And I was surprised when one of my advisors on my dissertation committee told me, you realize there are more people, there are millions of people who haven't completed the program because they are not focused. And it's something that requires, just like in life, you have to have that mental and emotional fortitude because it's easy to get distracted. It's definitely easy to become demoralized and disgusted with it. You have to learn to accept no and change this. So it it is something that requires you to develop a level of uh, not just focus and discipline, but intestinal fortitude if you're going to uh, not just survive it, but complete it. That's the key element. Yeah, you got to work independently and uh, on, for a long time in a kind of a lonely fashion. What was your dissertation on? What was your topic? I was looking at the affirmative action policies for businesses and how they either assisted or what 
needed to be improved to enhance uh, the participation and growth of women in African-American businesses in New Orleans. And what I found is that it's not just having a policy, but there's so many societal, historical, and institutional barriers and factors that impact the growth, the stability, the sustainability, the access to opportunities of these women in uh, minority-owned businesses that are never fully discussed. So they're institutional factors, they're generational factors, social class. These are all hidden elements. In fact, there's a book called The uh, Hidden Factors of Race, which looks at that. And that's what many people tend to ignore. You can have a policy, but there are so many environmental and ecological uh, uh, issues that impact whether or not those policies, one, are successful, and if they really are able to fulfill the goals that they are designed to achieve. What was your path to starting your own enterprise that you run today? Uh, well, it started really, uh, well, in undergrad at, at Loyola. One of my teachers in political science department was Joe Walker. And he was doing polling at the time. I got introduced to it then. Then uh, Dr. Dan Thompson, he was doing polling for a book. He had to send out the surveys by mail. And uh, he showed me some. I would read them. And it was a good introduction to it. Then Louis Charbonnet at Charbonnet Funeral Home, he decided to run for a state representative. And I learned a little bit about polling because Joe Walker did some research for him. So in each step and each activity, it gave me some exposure to it. You see how diverse these elements are. You have the academic exposure component at an institution. Then you have the real life exposure at the funeral home and also another academic level of exposure with Dan Thompson, who was teaching sociology at Dillard University at the time. So at what point did you like form an enterprise? Did you do that before you became a professor or after, or what was the time? It was a little bit, it was before. A gentleman by the name of Warren Bell, uh, he was the news director at WYLD radio station. And this was in 1983. And at the time, uh, Dutch Morial, who was the mayor, he was exploring the possibility, or uh, he had put on the ballot, really, uh, an initiative known as Unlimited Terms, changing the city charter from a mayor serving two terms to unlimited terms. And this, this radio station asked me to do a poll. Warren did, and I, I did. And the results were the same as the final results on election day. So then uh, Dutch Morial decided to, well, if unlimited terms didn't work, let me try just a third term. And that was a few months later. And it had me do another poll. And that, that failed also. Then from there, I started to attract more people deciding to run for office or in office. But really what I wanted to do was look at other avenues, not stay contained to the political arena. Uh, 
The political aspect gets the visibility, which is good. And it got the media coverage too. But I started doing more issue and national, the local urban league affiliate and social and civic activist groups, uh, some policy initiatives and presentations. Then in the late 80s, early 90s, branched off into some trial consulting, whereby one of the major cases at that time was the Chisholm case about redistricting and how it impacted African-American votes. Then on various policies, various social and economic initiatives, one big one was the lottery, a casino building, education, which is still a very strong component of what we do, and now healthcare with COVID in particular and other initiatives. Nonprofits is looking at what we call social impact with the National Urban League, the social impact that they have and their affiliate network, the billions of dollars generated to the economy, the millions of people served over the years in the five empowerment programs. So it's a diversity of the research that keeps you exposed to different institutions, different experiences, developing creative strategies. And one gentleman, uh, former Congressman Bill Jefferson in 92, he was working with Bill Clinton and he asked me to come on to the polling team to do African-American polls and research. And from then, that was in 92, I've been a part of six presidential campaigns, Clinton Gore, then Gore Lieberman, then Kerry and Edwards, Hillary Clinton in 07, occupied a vote in 2012, but I was President Obama's re-election, Biden-Harris. So six presidential campaigns since then. That is a long and uh, prominent career in polling that you've put together then. What is it that you like about that? Why did this suit you, this path? That's a, that's a question that is never asked as a great question because people tend to look at polling in a one dimension, a very tunnel perspective. They think it's only numbers. And the question I get asked from clients is, well, we look at the cross test. Why does one group or people who live in a certain area, certain region, certain income, why they feel that way? That's a strong sociological component to it. And a lot of it, unfortunately, focuses on the data and not on the human aspects of it. And that is where that's one of the distinguishing reasons that uh, people may utilize us, because I have some former students, one of my former students. She's now the current mayor of New Orleans, Mayor Latoya Cantrell. Another one is a state senator, uh, Gary Carter. Some are judges, Bruce Jupiter. Another uh, former student has her own diversity consulting business, Dr. Catrice Albert, that I work with. So it's, it's good because we have all these people from diverse backgrounds that help you analyze and see, and most importantly, how to communicate with diverse segments and constituencies in a community. And one of the things that not frustrates me, but what I notice is that 
I, I see clients and they just have numbers in front of them. And each number represents a human experience, each percentage that is never fully dissected and analyzed. And they may just look at that percentage and not understand how to navigate the environment of those people. Then they wonder why they don't have any credibility and why people are not responding to them because it is an ongoing process that doesn't start at the beginning of a campaign or when you're trying to introduce a product. It has to be something that is nurtured. What do you think you understand about public opinion, particularly in areas that you study deeply that most people don't understand? The intersection of not just race and class, but the environment that people live in, recognizing that simply talking about and articulating an issue or a policy or a vision does not enhance comprehension, nor does it enhance believability. Uh, this is a society and environment where it's a show and tell, where you have to show and demonstrate and in some way create a vision for people to see and hear before they have some buy-in. You notice every product, and that's how voters are and consumers are, uh, that we approach it as to, okay, what will this do for me? How will it help me, improve me? And it is not a one-dimensional, one-theme approach. What impacts women will be different from what impacts men, what impacts and what influences voters and consumers over 40, different from that of what impacts consumers 30 to 40. So we, we have to be strategic and recognize that this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And a lot of people are not prepared for that. It requires more work, requires more dexterity, because you have to be very flexible and adaptable to the nuances of the communities you're serving. And we see it, but we don't think about it. It's like when you travel different parts of the U.S. and simple things like McDonald's. So you, if you're in Texas, you might see a more Southwestern style of menu at McDonald's than you would see in the Northeast. You go overseas, some of the same products we see in America, such as Listerine, it has a different color, different flavor than it does in America. So that dexterity requires some level of cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, that unfortunately, a lot of people are not willing to put the work into. You mentioned these six presidential campaigns that you've been part of. And I know that those campaigns typically have kind of polling teams. They have multiple pollsters that have different specialties and maybe a lead pollster. And sometimes they change them out over time. But what difference did you see in how well they listened to your advice and the advice of your peers? How well did they hear you and how would you distinguish among some of those campaigns that you've been a part of? That's another very good question because I noticed with each one, they took a different tempo, some of them, and a different level of mental, I would say, fluidity 
and openness to change and recognize that we have to make some adjustments. So with some campaigns, they were very attuned to listening to what people said and incorporating what people said in the presentations and in the communications and the messaging. With others, sometimes they were more insulated and they had their own strategy before the research tried to stick to that strategy. And afterwards, they did not win. And I distinctly remember two cases in particular where the manager came to me afterwards and said, we should have listened to you. We probably would have won because they, they become so married to an insulated perspective that does not have the input of the people you're trying to reach sometimes. You know, they become constipated in their thinking. Not what you want to see in a campaign. What kind of advice had you been giving that wasn't listened to that a campaign manager thought was so significant that it might have made the difference? Be more visible and distilling what they were trying to communicate to language and policies that were relatable. People hear these big numbers. We're going to put millions of dollars into this. And for the average person, that's very hard to comprehend and understand. It sounds good. You know, people can envision what they're going to do with a million dollars if they won the lottery. But when you're talking about programs and say we're going to put millions into education, it's hard for them to envision that on a local level. So you have to scale it. And that is something that, again, requires the awareness to do it and the dexterity to do it and the resources to fine tune it to what works in California will not work in Arizona. Among those six campaigns, who was particularly good at hearing that and changing their messaging to communicate to people in a fashion that they could hear? I think some of the early ones and some of the later ones, the Biden-Harris campaign, they were very good at adapting to the political ecology. And the reason I use that one, if you think about 2019, when I first joined the campaign, that was a tumultuous time. You had more than a dozen candidates running and nobody, everybody you talk to, everybody said, Joe Biden can't win. Absolutely no way he can win. We used the research to develop a platform and a strategy to reach these diverse audiences. Anytime you are in battle, in a competition with products and as well as in political campaigns, when you are faced with this tough competition, don't become reactionary. And I've seen, not on campaigns, but other clients become reactionary, defensive, scared, paranoid, and they lose sight and focus of what they're trying to achieve. So we kept the focus on what it would take to build a coalition and recognize there will be ups and downs. It's just like when they tell you to invest in a retirement account, well, there'll be some months where the stocks will go up and other months it will go down. It might be a sustained period. Well, do you bail ship? No, you just have to ride that wave. And 
as you know, there were some ups and downs in that campaign. And you notice I came together at the end where he started to galvanize support, opposition, withdrew, started to support him. And he built this coalition. Needless to say, a lot of people did not expect him to select Kamala Harris as his running mate because of that first debate. And he decided, look, good choice. I think we can we can pull this together. And naturally, it worked out. So that it, you have to have that level of fluidity and not be married to an insulated strategy that may not work and think you know it all because people are so disconnected from the larger society and they have other people around them telling them what they want to hear. It's very easy to to become distracted from what your true purpose and what your goals may be. I've talked to John Anzalone and John Della Volpe, who also were part of the Biden polling team. And I, I guess I... Impressed with both of them, Della Volpe's knowledge of young people and their public opinion seem, you know, uh, developed over a long period of time, as as you've sort of suggested it takes. And uh, John Ann's only just had that sort of stability of mindset about, uh, at least from my read, about sort of staying the course generally and not getting too upset about ups and downs, but also sounds like being flexible. And I know there were, there's at least another pollster or two in that mix. So then the lake was part of it. Right. How did you guys get along as a team and how did you work together? It it was a very good team to work with uh, in the sense that one was mutual respect among everybody there. We all shared the same vision. You didn't have these internal battles where you had one person trying to compete for uh, more attention or more visibility. But we all shared a, a unified focus and vision and work to achieve that. It doesn't mean we always agreed on everything, but nothing was disruptive. The team was consolidated and we all had areas of specialty. Matt Barreto, he did a lot of uh, Hispanic polling and we all shared in in, in not only the experience, but focusing on a common message and not becoming distracted with all of the other things happening in the larger political environment. Tell me about your area of expertise and how that was utilized in the Biden campaign. In, in the Biden campaign, what we did was with African-American research, naturally the millennials and older voters and we looked at the various segments of the population in terms of the African-American vote, African-American women, African-American millennials, uh, definitely Jim Clyburn from Carolina, his influence and how, how that worked. We had to be aware of there will always be events that we had to not react to, but strategize about and maybe do some research around. And what the campaign was very adept at was using that in, it's like a puzzle. One piece may work one day, and you may have to, in some way, modify that same piece a week later for it to be effective or work in that same location. So we localized by region or by demographic groups, we 
identified how to put these diverse coalitions together and most importantly, communicate with them. How to utilize the strengths of the candidate and the campaign and neutralize any weaknesses. In the primary, it's hard not to think of that moment of Jim Clyburn's endorsement and the subsequent primary in South Carolina as the pivotal moment, the moment that Biden goes from, you know, nobody expecting him to to get it to sort of consolidating the lead, although I'm sure it didn't happen just in one moment. Can you give us some insight about like how you saw the run up to that moment, that moment and what came of it? It was like watching a a child grow just on steroids and a very condensed time period. So you go from someone who is known and Joe was known due to the fact that not only was he in the Senate, but he was former President Obama's vice president, which gave him another level of visibility and authenticity that some of the others did not have. What he was able to do was, and what we noticed, we looked at any landmines that might have been out there. But the competition, most importantly, because a lot of people were just reacting to, okay, who's running? And they automatically thought that that person running against Joe Biden would automatically dethrone him. And that didn't happen because there was so much in this infrastructure, the groundwork on the, on the local level, the outreach on the local level that people didn't see. It's like a frog or, uh, or like a duck would be a better example. You see the duck in the water and they're moving and you, you don't see their feet under the water and how fast they're working, how hard they're working to move them. And that's why a lot of people did not see the fact that there were so many people in this apparatus, groups, individuals who were working to elevate the candidacy. And sometimes there were events that occurred that helped the campaign too. Do you think there's any way he could have got the nomination without having been Obama's vice president? You never know. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, the, being the pres vice president under Obama, he was already introduced to the African-American community. He had a level of credibility with African-American community. He had a record and uh, a position that African-Americans were aware of. And two, when President Obama left, he left with extremely high job ratings and approval ratings. And that definitely helped Joe Biden. So having that position for eight years, when you look at the other candidates who were running against him, they did not have that visibility. They were all working to gain that visibility. And that was something that people felt comfortable with. And, and you notice during the campaign, too, was an, that was an attempt to focus on his record while in Congress and so forth. Well, people, people recognized that was 20, 30 years ago and how government functioned then, the issues then, were not some of the same issues today. So he did what he had to do to be successful and expedient during that period. The fact that the incumbent president was Donald Trump 
structured so much of of how the Democratic primary shaped out and how the general election did because he was so polarizing and really unifying for the coalition that ultimately defeated him. How did you personally think about Trump from uh, his starting to bother Obama in the run-up to the campaign through winning the office and then the way he governed and then into the campaign? How did you think about him? When we explored the issue, there was so much fatigue and frustration around Trump that created a level of motivation that you did not have to buy. It was built in. There was a strong desire for change that was universal in the electorate. Yet Trump got 72 million votes. We can't forget that. But at the same time, uh, there was a desire for change that motivated people that you did not have to necessarily organize around. It was self-motivating. And the re-election is going to be interesting because uh, the elements still out there that reflect Trump. And the issues are a little different. We still have, and we had COVID. And we don't know what's going to happen over there in Russia. So the elements and some of the issues are different, but there's still an element of motivation. And we're two years away. So that's an eternity in politics. But certainly to answer your question, there was such a strong desire for change to move beyond the Trump era that it was self-motivating. How about for you personally? Like he was a different kind of opponent than you had faced in these other campaigns that you'd been a part of. At least to my view, he's he was much more of a threat to the republic than previous republicans. How did that enter your own motivation and your own sort of uh feelings about about how to do your job? What it did was uh we, we had to look at ways and topics of how to relate what he did to the current and long-term impact of, uh, of, of diverse communities, African-American women and other diverse communities. So it wasn't just an issue of, yeah, Trump is here and this is what he's saying, but we also wanted to look at how to integrate that into a longer strategy without his name. Because people, uh, and what we noticed was that people said, yeah, Trump is a factor, but there's so many other factors out there that and, and, and institutions and things happening that reflect his philosophy that we are concerned about. So for me, what it did was it made me focus on looking at other issues, other pathways that people are informed by outside of just the political narrative. We had to look at survival issues, healthcare, education, public safety, without the Trump name and how it impacted people based on individuals who had a different philosophy and different perspective without the Trump name. And that what we found was that the Trump name was out there and people automatically associated with him, but not everyone. So he had to recognize that it had limited currency, but you had to be creative in 
broadening the impact of it and helping people see it. And what we notice is that in this society, people want more human interaction. That's what people really crave. That's what motivates them. It creates a level of confidence, this human interaction. We so attached to these mobile devices, which are good for instant communication, but they are not good for creating emotional intimacy and confidence. And that's something that due to time and resources is not always done effectively. There's a very different dynamic with a midterm coming up where Democrats are in power and on the defensive because of difficulties in the world and in the country. And then after that, we got another presidential race where, again, we have to hold the hold the presidency and keep either the incumbent or if someone else gets a nomination, that person in power. What kind of advice do you give now looking forward and to the degree that anyone can see the future? What do you see? Well, first, we have to take it one step at a time. And what is happening today will not necessarily be the uh, marquee issue a year from now. Right now, we are confronted with inflation, the Russia-Ukraine situation in particular, and a lot of social and economic anxiety tied to inflation as well as connected to the Russia and Ukraine situation. Voters are emotional. People are emotional. Uh, people are not good at a balancing act. And we are confronted with multiple crises right now. And what I have to uh, suggest is that individuals who are in social, political, economic positions of influence, they have to reassure people. They have to develop strategies that are not reactionary, but a prelude to some of the things that people might experience. We have to calm the anxiety and uncertainty. It's elevated right now. We see it in the polls. People feel that the country is headed in the wrong direction. And that's primarily a reaction to one issue or two issues. And people are trying to balance their lives and the uncertainty that they are confronted with, which is why for elected officials and policymakers, it's a greater challenge to reassure people because we're confronted with so much uncertainty and this dilemma of fix it now and is beyond fixing it right now, which is uh, what you see with Biden. He's very good at reassuring people and telling individuals that, look, it's going to be long term. It's not going to be immediate. And therefore, we will have some anxiety and frustration along the way. But this is what is coming. So you ha we have to be very strategic and repeat in terms of telling individuals not only to manage the expectations, but we have to realize our limitations too as policymakers. So those are two major things, managing and communicating. We have to have this ongoing channel of communication to reassure people because they forget and their challenges are so overwhelming right now that it is easy for them to forget and lose confidence. 
Do you think the party in general, from the president on down, is finding the right way to communicate to people in those circumstances about what we're doing to govern? To a large degree, yes. In order to answer your question, uh, what we find with communication now is constantly evolving. You may start with a script and a strategy to implement, and due to circumstances and events beyond your control, you have to scrap it and move to a different plan. Do we have a plan B? Yes, but sometimes B may not be applicable. Plan B may not be applicable to what is happening. So it's, it, it, the social environment that we are in uh, and, and governing now is more complex. I call it, and then what I read in some publications and other research, we are living in what's called a VUCA, V-U-C-A society. And that is where leading institutions, influence and policy, making decisions, implementing those decisions, more complex. They, they, they have a greater impact. There's no such thing as isolating many issues and problems that we were able to do 20, 30 years ago. And when I say VUCA, society now is volatile. It's uncertain. It's complex. It's ambiguous. And just when you think you may have a handle on something, it changes. And that makes it difficult. It, uh, and it makes it a little bit more complex to govern and to plan ahead. And that's what we have to be aware of. I didn't know VUCA, but I looked it up just as you said it, and I think it does really apply. Um, is there a question that I haven't asked you that you would like to be asked? I think that creating a bench, an influencer bench, you know, with influence now, it used to be, and this is 2022, when I say used to be, 10, 20 years ago, where individuals who are connected with an institution, they had influence with a broader base of consumers and voters. Now we have social influences. What's different now? Social media. When people talk about the media, I say, well, we have traditional media and social media. Now let's look at the distinctions as to how that is different and what has changed. You're too young to remember when television went off at midnight. Up until the 1980s, how many networks we had? The mid-80s. ABC, CBS, NBC, a local independent station. Then cable comes along. Prior to that, those stations cut off at midnight. Then cable comes along. Now, big difference too. Television went from free, just buy a TV and plug it in and buy some antennas, to cable you had to pay for. But you got first movies, then you got CNN and other channels that stayed on all night. Then it became more segmented. You had various channels and pathways in terms of the media via cable, then via satellite that were focused on either social policy, health, education, entertainment, whatever you wanted. Then comes social media. 
Facebook, and Twitter. Key element there with the cell phone information and the internet, which is very important, information is transmitted in seconds. And we are not tethered to a house, an office, or somewhere where we had to be connected. It's wireless. So the information channels and network, they're broader, more diverse. No one has control over them. And that's a big challenge that uh, we have to become aware of and how to nurture and navigate this environment that is not only diverse, but instantaneous. Now information travels within 10 seconds. It seems like it's got to keep your job continually interesting to have so much change in just the, the way that people pick up information and so many other things. Not just the change, but how people get information. And I distinctly remember in the 08 campaign and the 2000 campaign, looking at the polling data, how do you get information? People were saying TV, newspaper. 2020, people were saying social media and Facebook. The interesting thing about a lot of social media, it repurposes, retweets, or incorporates traditional media. But due to the fact that a friend sent someone a tweet, which included a clip from one of the, one of the traditional media, or one of the cable or satellite uh, stations or networks, it becomes seen as social media. Just in a matter of 10, 15 years, I saw the change in people saying TV and radio to, well, social media and friends. We have so many non-traditional influencers now who are in communities that share information. They have created a social network that is tremendously powerful that is not connected all the time to an institution or elected official, but they have influence. You know, it's fascinating to talk to you. I wish I had more time with you. Um, is there anything else you want to say? No, I would say that uh, we just have to remain flexible, diligent, embrace the change, not be afraid of it. Yes, these are uncertain times, but at the same time, we have to embrace it. It is scary sometimes, um, but we, it, it does give us a level of fortitude. It shows how not just resilient we are, but it also shows how some political and social leaders who are very focused on achieving an outcome they become more resilient, more creative, and more responsive to these challenges. Okay, well, good to talk to you. That was Silas Lee. He's at drleeinfo.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.